Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on Thursday, September 23rd. I'm Katie Balls, The Spectator's Deputy Political Editor. On this week's show, America, Britain and Australia have signed the AUKUS Pact, forming a new alliance in the Pacific and promising to share technology for nuclear submarines. I'll be speaking to our political editor, James Forsyth, about whether Britain could end up in a war for Taiwan, former NI6 chief John Sawyers, about whether this is the right approach to countering China, and former Aussie Prime Minister Tony Abbott, about why Australia's approach to Beijing is so different from that of its neighbour, New Zealand. Gas prices are rising. The wholesale cost of gas has risen 250% since January. And from the 1st of October, when the price cap is reviewed, consumers will have to pay. Why has this happened? What should the government do? And what will they do? We'll speak to Martin Lewis from Money Saving Expert. Then we'll return to COVID. The history of the pandemic is already being written, with books about the last two years now being published, if you feel like reliving it already. Kate Andrews, our economics editor, reviewed one. Adam Tooze's shutdown for this week's magazine. And she'll be on the show with the economist Steve Keen to discuss how coronavirus has changed the way we look at the world economy. And we'll finish at Cambridge University. Stephen Toop, the Vice-Chancellor, has announced that he'll be stepping down in September next year. His time in office has been marred by battles over free speech and disputes about China's involvement at the institution. Douglas Murray, our associate editor, will tell us why he's glad to see the back of him. Before we get going, if you enjoy Spectator TV, you should subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the red subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. And why not also subscribe to The Spectator magazine? You can get 10 weeks of the magazine delivered to your door, plus a bottle of Pims worth £25 for just £10. To take up the deal, just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. Hurry, as it's only available where stocks last. First up, America, Britain and Australia have signed a new security pact, AUKUS, to provide nuclear power submarines to Australia. In his cover piece for the week's magazine, James Forsyth says, this new special relationship is here to stay. He joins me now. James, in your cover piece, you say that the AUKUS Pact outlines the next 30 years of British foreign policy. Can you explain? I think what the AUKUS Pact means is it's a decisive shift from the UK to uh, joining the effort to check China. Um, it was only uh, six years ago that Xi Jinping was having the red carpet rolled out for him in London, a banquet at Buckingham Palace, a visit to Chequers, a cyber security agreement signed in, in, of all things, signed in in Downing Street. The UK has now joined uh, this, uh, played played a key role in the formation of this new alliance. And it's very hard to see this new alliance being about anything other than trying to check China's rise in in the Asia-Pacific. And I think that is... And I think that because of the, the, the cooperation that it puts in place on, on both a military and a technological level, I think this means that this will now become the default of UK foreign policy, much in the way that NATO membership was throughout the Cold War. And James, we've heard a lot about the special relationship, even if Boris Johnson isn't a fan of the term. Um, we've also heard about difficulties in Joe Biden's relationship with Boris Johnson. Obviously, they two have been meeting this week. Do you think this pact shows the relationship is strong or, in fact, the relationship survives beyond personalities? Well, I think one of the strengths of the, of the special relationship is because it set up these kind of institutional military and intelligence cooperation, you know, the, the, the good relationship between the political principles is, is the cherry on top of the relationship rather than the cake itself. You know, and look, yes, the special relationship was particularly strong under Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, but it also survived uh, when the President and the Prime Minister really didn't get on. Think of Bill Clinton and John Major or Donald Trump and, and Theresa May. And I think that the nature of this AUKUS pact will be the same. It's not going to be dependent on personal chemistry between the US president and, and, and these two prime ministers. I think in terms of, of Boris Johnson and Joe Biden, I think we should have a, a note of caution here. Do you remember at the G7 summit in Cornwall, everyone said, oh, Joe Biden is going to read Boris Johnson, the riot act on the protocol. Emmanuel Macron went out of his way to look like he was kind of more chummy with Joe Biden than Boris Johnson was. Yet, 
it was at that meeting of the G7 that Boris Johnson, Scott Morrison and Joe Biden came up with this, this pact, this AUKUS pact, you know, that all was set in motion at, at that summit. And so I think, I, think we should, I think we should be slightly careful of some of the reports about the nature of the relationship. You know, they have clearly decided to do this together. And it, it, is, uh, I think it is. I think it is both a deepening and a broadening of a special relationship. I think it takes the special relationship into the Indo-Pacific. And the addition of Australia um, provides you know, another element to this. This is, this is now a three-way special relationship. And James, can you explain uh, why Boris Johnson has chosen to be part of this pact? Because when it comes to China, we've often seen Tory backbenchers, very hawkish, um, going for a much tougher line than Boris Johnson wants. And actually, he is almost seen as a relative uh, xenophile when it comes to his party. Yeah, I think, you, I think when Boris Johnson was elected as Prime Minister, a few people have had him down as a, as a China hawk. I think some things have changed that. One is uh, China is no longer... Uh, biding its time and hiding its capabilities. It's been very clear about its wish to create uh, relationships of either dependence or coercion. And I think its treatment of Australia, after Australia called for an independent inquiry into the origins of coronavirus, has woken a lot of people up, I, I would add, including the Prime Minister, including Boris Johnson, to how China will behave. You know, Australia develops this, this, this very vibrant trade relationship with China. China accounts for a third of Australia's trade. China then tried to use that to turn the screw on Australia, to kind of force it into line. I think that had an impact. I think if you look at Hong Kong, you know, China um, has treaty obligations from the, from the treaty it signed with the UK before the handover. It is trampling over all of them and it's clamped down on, on, on freedoms there. And I also think this, you know, the Pacific is where the future is being forged in, in, in strategic terms, in technological terms, in economic terms. This pact gives the UK a relevance in the Pacific that it has not had for decades. Now, you mentioned Taiwan, and we've heard um, some Tories, including Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, um, suggest that this pact could actually lead the UK being part of a war involving Taiwan. Um, how likely do you think that is a as a possibility uh, in the medium term? I think this decade is dangerous. I am very persuaded by the American academic Hal Brands' argument that the danger of China is that, like Willemine Germany in the run-up to World War I or uh, Imperial Japan in the 1940s, it can see that its rise is slowing. You know, China's growth rate has halved since uh, 2007. And it sees that it had, and it can also see a series of alliances being put in place, not just uh, AUKUS, but also the Quad, which is Japan, India, Australia and the US, which, which are going to check it and contain it and decides that it has a, a closing window to decisively change the balance of power and attempts to do that through seizing Taiwan. I mean, the danger is that China is buoyed by all of these reports about how uh, US military war games show them losing a conflict over Taiwan, but China begins to believe some of its own propaganda about how Afghanistan shows that the US doesn't have uh, the stomach for the fight and decides that it is going to try and break out and take Taiwan. I think in those circumstances, uh, no, uh, no US president would have really have a choice but to defend Taiwan. For if Taiwan were to fall to the Chinese, uh, then that would be the end of the US-led world order. So I, I think there is a risk. I think the risk is at its highest in the next uh, 10 years or so. I think if we get to the end of this decade, and then I think it will become clearer that the alliance structures that the US are putting in place means that China um, can't hope to, um, to kind of gain control of the Pacific. Uh, but I think the, the next decade are, are going to be, the next decade is going to be quite alarming at times. And in that scenario, James, you mentioned that the US or any US president would choose to retaliate, um, to intervene. Do you think that this pact shows that in that um, event, you'd also have Australia and the UK by America's side? I think you would certainly have Australia by the US's side by, by dint of its geographic uh, position. Uh, I, I, think that the, I think ultimately for the UK, a vital UK national interest would be at stake, which is, you know, a, a Chinese-led world order would not be a comfortable place for the United Kingdom. I mean, I, I think that depending on, on, on where US, UK military assets are at the time, uh, this could be over very quickly, though. 
Now, James, while we have you here, um, just looking more broadly at UK politics this week, I'll be heading off to Brighton for the Labour Party conference um, this weekend. Um, and while we're not there yet, we have seen some action coming from Labour, Keir Starmer, um, coming up for a plan to change the way in which a Labour leader is selected. Can you talk us through what he's trying to do and whether he has much chance of doing it? So Keir Starmer wants to move away from... Uh, the membership-based voting system that produced Jeremy Corbyn and, and go back to a kind of electoral college. Now, this is ironic because it used to be that Labour modernisers favoured one member, one vote, uh, while the left of the Labour Party favoured the electoral college system. But, but you know, th- those positions have now reversed. Uh, the left of the party are not happy about this. Uh, John McDonnell has basically said that if he wants to do this, he should submit himself for re-election under the old rules because he wouldn't have been elected if he'd said that this was what his intention was. But I think, there is a, I, think, I think as you say in the magazine this week, Katie, there is a kind of strategic rationale from Starmer behind this move, which is uh, the polling that his team are looking at shows that voters think he is different from Jeremy Corbyn, but they aren't sure whether the Labour Party itself has changed or not. And it's hard not to see this in an attempt to engineer uh, a fight with the party that they will hope will stamp his authority on it and enable him to, 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 to really... Uh, to show voters rather than just telling them that Labour is under new management. James, thanks for that. Thanks for joining us. So how serious a player can Britain be in this alliance? And could we be dragged into a conflict in Taiwan? Sir John Sawyers, former head of MI6, joins me now. Boris Johnson said that the new alliance is not adversarial towards China. Do you think he's right? I think he's right that it's not aggressive towards China. What it is, it's a defensive alliance. Uh, And in many ways, it's China that has been expanding its military footprint, uh, building out in the South China Sea, reaching into the Indian and Pacific Oceans um, as it expands its uh, its military capabilities. Um, And I think the Australians are right to be concerned about having the capacity to push back against China. Uh, So it's it's support for uh, a wider defence arrangement rather than being uh, assertive or aggressive against any particular country. But clearly China is the main country of concern. And what does the UK bring to the arrangement? Uh, Because clearly uh, we're talking about where Australia is, why uh, Australia would want this, and the US is a bigger partner. So what is the UK's role in all this? It's definitely the case that, as the French have pointed out, that the UK is the the third country in this. Uh, But I think we bring two things. First of all, we bring a lot of uh, defence industrial capability. Um, BAE Systems and Rolls-Royce have have together mastered the production of uh, uh, nuclear-propelled submarines. And I think uh, they may well benefit quite substantially from the contracts that flow from this. But I think more importantly, there's um, the sort of historic role that Britain played during the Cold War, where our submarines patrolled the North Atlantic and monitored the movements of, uh, of Soviet uh, submarines. And I think Australia could play a similar role in the next decades in the uh, great power rivalry between the United States and China as the, uh, as the UK played during the Cold War. So there's a historic role there as well. And of course, the three countries are linked together by a very high degree of trust Uh, embedded in our common experience, our common culture, uh, and uh, represented in some ways by the Five Eyes intelligence arrangements of which the uh, uh, United States, UK and Australia are the three uh, uh, most significant powers. Uh, So I think there's there's a trust element here that brings these three countries together. And on that uh, trust element, uh, we have seen this week the diplomatic row continue to play out in terms of France, um, the exclusion of France from this deal, and also the fact that they then lost out on a a multi-billion pound deal for um, submarines. Why do you think France hasn't been brought in? And do you think there's a role where uh, you could see uh, Emmanuel Macron playing a more, of a, more of a part in this? Look, France is a significant player, uh, including in the Asia-Pacific, uh, as the UK is. Uh, but the, the, the main countries of Asia are not looking to France to counterbalance China. They're looking to the United States to do so. And it's not a question of a contract over a few years. It's, a, it's an arrangement which will last decades. Uh, and I don't think, frankly, France has built up the level of trust um, uh, with uh, Asian countries, with Australia and so on, 
uh, that the United States and the UK brings. Uh, so uh, France has got a role to play. Uh, I do think the, uh, the Biden administration mishandled the French dimension, but equally I think the French reaction has been frankly over the top and you know, they've been throwing their toys out of the pram. They will get over it, uh, but the, uh, uh, it's a sort of rather dramatic example of, sort of diplomatic pyrotechnics uh, by France. But the UK uh, can't just sort of um, uh, 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 dismiss a, a French role. Um, uh, France remains you know, our closest neighbour, uh, and Britain's defence in depth isn't in the South China Sea. Our defence in depth is in Western Europe. So getting back on terms with our European neighbours and partners is going to be really important. Now, Joe Biden has said that he does not want another Cold War. Um, do you think he's going to get a choice in that? Are we potentially edging to something a bit more like that? Well, what's changed, Katie, over the last um, uh, 10 years or so isn't the West's behaviour, it's China's behaviour. I think there was a, a, an opportunity under Deng Xiaoping and his two successors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, that the, uh, China would evolve in a, in a gradually more plural way. But Xi Jinping has taken China back to, uh, to core Marxism-Leninism in, 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 in the role of the party, controlling the country. Uh, he's re redeveloped the uh, uh, cult of personality that we last saw with Mao Zedong. Um, uh, and uh, uh, China has become a much more assertive and, and uh, uh, controlling and domineering uh, country. And I think what we're seeing now is the United States responding to Chinese uh, aggression and Chinese behavior. Now, it's not the same as the Cold War because of the sheer scale of China's economy and the fact that China is going to play a really important part in the global economy uh, for decades to come. So it's a different sort of uh, great power rivalry that we'll be dealing with. But defense and security arrangements are going to be a crucial part of making sure that our friends and allies in Asia are not sort of, sort of dominated uh, by China in the way that China would, uh, would perhaps like. And just finally, do you think we're beginning to see a new world order and new alliances? Um, you mentioned Five Eyes earlier, um, but clearly New Zealand seems to be moving in a different direction or at least wanting to adopt a much softer approach when it comes to China. So are, I think, our old allies um, almost reassessing and we're seeing new packs now? Well, I think the, the UK is reassessing uh, because we've left the European Union um, uh, and because uh, uh, we are paying quite a price for that. France is leading the pack in some ways in, in uh, making our lives difficult in a, in a post-Brexit world. Um, I think the, uh, uh, this government, perhaps not surprisingly, has decided that uh, it can't just go it alone. It has to be more closely associated strategically, e even more closely associated with the United States. So I think that transatlantic alliance is likely to be uh, uh, closer in years to come. Of course, we run the risk of America taking an extreme nationalist turn, which is not to be completely ruled out in, uh, in years ahead. I think it's unlikely, but it's not impossible. Um, uh, and I think the European Union, uh, in particular France, needs to reconsider how it is going to play a role, not just in the economic and prosperity benefits of uh, China's rise, but in ensuring a, a, a calm and, and uh, a secure global uh, defense order uh, as well. So yes, some alliances are being reforged, we, we can't ignore our backyard here in Europe. Russia remains a bigger threat to us than any other country, uh, and NATO remains a central element for defending ourselves against Russia. We can't uh, distract ourselves or, or even make our main effort in the Pacific, but what is happening in the, in the Western Pacific with China's rise has to be added to the list of things that we have to defend ourselves against, and I think the AUKUS agreement is an important step in that direction. John, thanks for joining us. These new submarines are going to be based in Australia, a country that already has a difficult relationship with China. Why have they taken such a different line from their neighbours, New Zealand, who seem to be cozying up to the regime in Beijing? Tony Abbott, the former Australian Prime Minister, is on the show. Tony, thanks for joining us. What does Australia get out of this new alliance? We get essentially three things, Katie. Uh, first, we get a modern nuclear submarine which is an incredibly important element in any country's uh, defence. Obviously, uh, a nuclear-powered submarine gives you a strategic deterrent uh, in a way that no conventional submarine can. So that's the first and the greatest benefit for Australia out of this new tripartite pact with the United Kingdom and the United States. 
The second thing is that it brings Britain back east of Suez in a way that Britain hasn't really been uh, for at least uh, five decades. And given the challenge we all face from China right now to have Britain, the Western world's second strongest military power, uh, back front and centre in our region is a really positive development. Third and finally, it makes Australia a more significant part of the overall Western alliance. If we can contribute to, along with our other armed forces, uh, eight effective modern nuclear-powered submarines, we are uh, a force to be reckoned with. And frankly, um, given our standing in the wider world, I think we should be a force to be reckoned with. And this is what we'll be, uh, thanks to the AUKUS deal. Um, now, Emmanuel Macron's not very happy at the moment um, over the AUKUS pact. And if you had the French um, really um, getting quite angry and showing that in various ways uh, mm -hmm. over the fact that the um, contract regarding submarines uh, was moved from them. Um, do you think that's something that will worry uh, the Australian government? Uh, how is that perceived in Australia? We've had periods in the past when our relations with France went into the deep freeze. Uh, there was a period uh, in the 80s uh, when uh, uh, the French were conducting nuclear tests uh, in the South Pacific and French agents actually sank a Greenpeace vessel in Auckland Harbour. I think it was in the 80s. Then there was a period in the mid-90s when they resumed nuclear testing in the South Pacific when uh, our relations uh, were pretty pretty frosty. Look, um, France is an important country. Uh, it has powerful armed forces. Um, essentially, uh, its strategic interests and those of Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States are very similar. But the French have always liked to stand a bit aloof uh, from... Uh, uh, Les Anglos, <laughs> and uh, um, we've never had the kind of strategic intimacy with the French that we've had for really um, decades and decades and decades with the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, and given the importance of nuclear technology, uh, really, it's only possible to have this kind of relationship with people who are your most intimate strategic partners. Um, I thought back in 2016 when the French submarine deal was first announced that it didn't make a lot of sense to take an existing French nuclear design, spend 15 years redesigning it and rebuilding it as a conventional sub, only to give us something um, less effective than what we could have had right now. Uh, but I don't think the French were ever going to share with us uh, their nuclear technology, simply because uh, uh, good friends and all that they are, they're not family in the same way that the United States and the United Kingdom are. And just finally, Tony, uh, we've had Theresa May, our former Prime Minister, warning that uh, the AUKUS pact could see the UK dragged into conflict over Taiwan. Um, do you think that's a realistic possibility? Uh, look, I think conflict over Taiwan is a very realistic possibility. Um, and I think it's important that the Western world uh, stands very surely uh, with the people of Taiwan. Um, I'm not saying that we abandon our one China policy, but we should be making it absolutely crystal clear to the Chinese that any unilateral alteration of the status quo, any coercion of Taiwan will have incredibly serious consequences. Let's not forget Taiwan is a liberal pluralist democracy of 25 million people. It has never been part of communist China. It hasn't really been part of China since 1895 when it was ceded to the Japanese. There was a very brief period at the end of the Second World War uh, when China was in chaos 
when it was nominally Chinese, but it's never been part of communist China. Uh, since the 80s, it's been increasingly a flourishing liberal pluralist democracy and uh, free countries, wherever they are, uh, should be standing shoulder to shoulder with the free people of Taiwan saying that we should be the ones to control our own destiny. We should not be subject to coercion from the commissars in Beijing. If we wish to reunite with Beijing, uh, that's got to be our decision, uh, not uh, that of the Beijing government. Thanks, Tony. Back home, a gas price crisis has seen energy companies collapse and means Brits will be forced to pay for larger bills, no matter what the government might say. How serious is this? I'm joined now by Martin Lewis from Money Saving Expert. Martin, first, could you just explain to viewers why gas prices have risen in the way they have? I'm always better at the how than the why. I leave that to the business experts. Um, how have they risen? We have a huge spike in wholesale worldwide gas prices, um, which means prices across the world have gone up. But the UK is far worse hit than elsewhere for a number of factors. First of all, because we're also reliant quite substantially these days as we've got no longer have coal generation and haven't replaced it with other forms on a lot of gas powered electricity power stations. So our electricity costs tend to mirror the gas wholesale price, price quite substantially. There have been issues in uh, interconnectors with Europe of getting gas across to the UK and a range of other factors that mean UK wholesale prices are astronomical, fourfold what they were this time last year. And that is an enormous catastrophic hit for the UK energy market. And we're now seeing it roll into consumers. Now, no one should sit there and think, why did we not know? I mean, I was presenting Good Morning Britain back in June and I asked the energy minister, I said, you do realise in October there is going to be an enormous rise in energy prices. And I got, to be honest, not very much in reply that batted it off with talk of price caps and switching and things like that. So th this has been coming a long time, not quite to the extreme level we have now. I mean, I wrote my, my first recent piece on it two weeks ago, and then I called it dire, but it's got a lot worse since. And then, Martin, we've heard from the government uh, more recently in the sense that Boris Johnson is saying that this is a temporary problem and directly linking it to COVID, the fact that everyone is almost springing back into action and there's a surge in demand because of that. Um, do you think it's right to say this is a temporary issue and it will be out of the worst of it fairly soon? Or is that a bit optimistic? Well, he's right in the sense that life is a temporary issue, isn't it? It only lasts 80, 90 odd years. So, I mean, of course, this is temporary. It will be different in the future. The question is both how long it lasts and what the current impact has on future prices. Now, my focus is on consumer energy prices and the situation is pretty bloody dire right now. Let me try and talk you through where we are. So over 50% of homes pay the price cap. The energy price cap on the 1st of October will rise 12%, which for a typical home is a rise of from 1,130 quid to 1,270 quid. I say a typical home because, of course, while it's called a price cap, that's a lie. It is not a price cap. It's a rate cap. It caps the rates that you pay. So if you use more, you pay a lot more. We just give the, the figure as a price cap so people can understand it based on typical use. But there is no cap on what you will pay. If you use a lot, you'll pay a lot. So on the 1st of October, that will go up. But what everybody needs to understand is the 1st of October price cap is based on average wholesale prices in the six months until the end of July, when they were rising, but they were not rising astronomically. We are now in the assessment period for the next price cap, it's six monthly, which happens on the 1st of April, 2022. That period is from the 1st of August this year until the end of January next year. So we're roughly a third of the way through that period. And this is the point where we have seen astronomical rises in wholesale rates. Now, Cornwall uh, uh, industry analysts, who are the people who look at the price cap, I got a figure from them yesterday that at the current run rate, the price next April will go to £1,455 on typical use, which is another 14% rise on top of the current price cap. And as people factor their energy bills over the next year, you need to be aware of that. 
And someone said to me, and again, yesterday, uh, I got someone to put the question to Quasi Quotang about, you know, what's going to happen April? And he said, nobody knows what the, what the energy price will be in April. Well, actually, we've got a pretty bloody good clue because we're two, a third of the way through the analysis period for the next price cap. And if you look at where we are right now, wholesale prices would have to drop to pandemic lows for the whole of the remaining four months of this assessment period in order for the price cap not to rise next April. And most people think prices are going to stay pretty high for a good deal longer. So while it may be temporary, I think this is certainly what's happening right now is going to affect people's energy bills for the next 12 months at least. And that is a real problem. The price cap right now is protective because effectively it's forcing energy companies to supply energy at below cost. But if the wholesale price drops next April, it will be destructive because it will lock people in at a far higher price than the market rates. The time lag here is a real problem. And I've only talked about the price cap. If we look at those people who are on cheap deals, they are now paying. If your cheap fix is coming to an end, the cheapest fixes available today are 60% higher than what was available last year. 60%. If you were paying a grand a year, you're now going to be paying the equivalent of £1,600 a year on the same usage. So nobody's going to be doing that. They're all going to be moving to the price cap. And of course, all of this is without discussing the huge market failure that means unless something is done, it's likely the vast majority of energy firms in this country are going to go bust, leaving us with primarily only the old monopoly suppliers. Now, just sticking with consumers for now, um, we're talking about the energy price cap. One of the things ministers are really worried about is a cost of living crisis going into the autumn and the winter. Um, but Quite we right. heard ministers talking about this idea that the price cap is here to stay, the energy price cap will remain in place. And I think it's meant to offer reassurance. But as you were explaining, Martin, even if you have the price cap, that isn't going to protect you from your bills going up. Is that correct? Consumers are still going to feel this. No, the price cap is damage limitation. Everybody is going to pay more for energy than they were doing, apart from those people who locked into a long fix, you know, a year or two ago, and they went got a two or three year fix, which is a very, very small proportion of the population. So everybody will pay more. The question is how much more. The price cap does, for the next six months, protect people from being hit by the huge rise in wholesale gas prices that's happening right now. But most people will then have to pay it from the following April until the next October, which luckily is a slightly lower use period, but bills then are going to be astronomically high if people don't switch. Now, when you couple that with the end of the universal credit uplift, the end of furlough support for some, the end of self-employment support for others, and the rate of inflation, then it is not hyperbole to say there are some people in this country, hopefully not many, who will have to choose between heating and eating. And the figure I like to bring in when I talk about this is the thing that is meant to protect vulnerable people from energy prices, and the, the system is not one I would design, but that's what's in place, is the warm home discount. Now, the warm home discount is a £140 payment that energy suppliers have to provide to customers who are vulnerable in certain categories, and the categories can be quite complicated. However, the warm home discount has been £140 for the last nine years. In the last year alone, the cheapest energy deals have gone up by 60%. The price cap has gone up by 12%. It's likely it will go up by another 14% next April. The warm home discount is not close to being enough to protect people from what's going on in energy. So what we will need is we need the government to increase the warm home discount. But of course, it's energy suppliers who pay the warm home discount, and they are currently, because of the price cap, having to supply energy deals at below cost. So there has to be a form of government intervention here. To say it's all going to get better, to say it's all temporary, I think ignores the real prosaic problems that people will have paying bills this winter. And we've covered, uh, I suppose, how consumers are going to be affected by this, um, the energy price cap. But the other thing is we are seeing energy companies saying they're at risk of going bust, um, that they need help uh, from the government. If uh, we do see these companies go bust, what happens to the customers at that point? 
Well, we have the off-gen safety net, which guarantees that if your company goes bust, you will be ported to a new company and your credit will be protected. I'm not saying it's without hassle and without difficulties, but your supply stays on and you're protected. But I'm not an economist. I'm not a business expert. I'm a consumer finance journalist. So to my lack of knowledge and logic about how this works, I do find the government stance a little bit confusing. Because what it has said is, we will not bail out companies who have failing business models. I understand that and I understand the statement. Instead, the way it's looking at the moment is the government is pushing companies to provide energy at below their cost, according to the price cap because clearly wholesale rates now are higher than the new price cap that comes in on the 1st of October. So to argue that it's a failing business model when they're having to provide energy at substantially below cost, I think is quite tough because the only ones who've got the capital to balance that out are the huge former monopoly suppliers. And so what is gonna happen is a lot of firms are gonna go bust. People keep talking small firms. It's not small firms. I mean, there are companies with over a million customers who may well go under and are looking at bringing in administrators. This is pretty much all firms, but the main former monopoly suppliers, if the wholesale prices stay where they are. And of course they could drop, but nobody knows when, nobody knows by how much. So what does that mean? The net, net result of that is, it won't prop up failing business suppliers in which case those customers will have to be ported to the former monopoly suppliers, but they're not going to take them on and going to take the credit liabilities on because they're having to supply below cost. So the government is going to have to foot up and bail out the former monopoly suppliers to take on the customers of the small suppliers. Now, you know, if we take the government's ideology, not necessarily mine, the government's ideology has always been about promoting competition in the energy market. But what we're about to see happen is small companies, mid-sized companies and some larger companies go bust. Their customers ported to the former monopoly suppliers who are going to be paid and bailed out to take them. I don't see how that fits with a competition, a competition based policy. And I just think it's not very joined up at the moment. We are in a short term crisis. If you want a competitive market, which is what the government has always said, I'm not sure they've, they've managed it the right way. But if you're going to take the idea that we run on a competitive market, you're going to need some competitors. Yes, I accept some of these small firms have, have crap business models and should go by the wayside, but not all of them who are struggling are in that position. This is an unprecedented crisis in wholesale prices hitting the UK far worse than any other countries. I'm not going to go into the reasons why the UK is far worse hit. I'll leave that for the politicians. I'm sure there are people on lots of different sides of the debate who will argue why it's happened here, but there is no doubt the UK is in a radically different position to anywhere else in Europe and anywhere else in the wholesale costs of energy in this country. And the government's going to have to step in and do something one way or another, but it's got to question what the end result of the market it'll leave if it, what it effectively does is just give money to the former monopoly suppliers. Thank you, Martin. Now to COVID. Histories of the pandemic are already being written, even though we're still living through it. Kate Andrews reviews Adam Tooze's shutdown in this week's magazine, and she joins me now to discuss how we look at the economy after coronavirus. With Kate is The Economist Steve Keane, an honorary professor at University College London. Kate, Steve, thanks for joining us. Kate, the first draft of COVID history is starting to be written, so what's the verdict on our economic response? Uh, well, in Adam Tooze's shutdown, uh, he meticulously traces many different elements of the surreal economic crash that we saw at the height of the COVID crisis and then what governments around the world did uh, to combat the consequences of that. Um, there's some spectacular little details in there, um, stats uh, about social distancing. He estimates that roughly 19% of, of virus cases um, were, were mitigated because of mandatory social distancing from government. The rest was down uh, to voluntary social distancing. Really interesting stats about men and women in work and the ways that that looks very different and what happened from the financial crash of 2008. Um, but overall, it's a very difficult 
an uphill challenge, let's say, to write uh, the history of COVID-19 while it's still taking place. Um, you know, our battle with the virus isn't over. It's quite clear that Adam Tews had to stop writing before we got to a lot of the vaccine success, um, which I think uh, does change the narrative for a lot of countries. Um, so, uh, I mean, a, a very lofty goal to, to set out the history of, of, of COVID-19 and the economic consequences of it, but very, very difficult to do while that story uh, is, is still unfolding. Steve, what do you make so far, I suppose, bigger picture of the economic response to COVID? As Kate mentions, uh, the slight issue yeah. of these histories is things do move quite quickly and vaccines have transformed things. Yeah, it, it's, you know, we, we know that in terms of the scale of the kind of downturn, it, it far exceeds the Great Depression, the biggest downturn we've had in 300 years. Uh, and the reason it was so severe was, of course, it meant we couldn't do what is essential for commerce, and that is connect. Um, so... In that situation, if we had only a market economy response, quite possibly the market economy would have crashed completely. Uh, people would have had financial commitments they couldn't make for rent, for mortgages. Uh, banks could have folded dramatically. So there was a need when the, when the market system couldn't provide the money, there was a need for the government to do it. Now, that was done to some degree and quite a substantial degree. You see the scale of the deficits that were undertaken of the order of 30 and 40% of GDP, which is comparable to the deficits that funded the World, World War II efforts. Uh, so the governments did well in one sense, but less than they should have done. And the fact the governments didn't provide sufficient funding for people to not be forced to go to work in the gig economy and so on, I think is one reason why the spread uh, was as far large as it was and the violent reaction to the lockdowns was as bad as they were. Uh, it's all very well to be locked in, if, if you're like me, where you have an independent income. But if you're locked in where the only way you can pay the rent is if you go out, uh, I, I can understand that losing to riots around the world. So we did reasonably, but I, th I think overall the, uh, the effect of what we've done has given us uh, a virus we have to live with for decades now, which if we'd done a, a seriously well-coordinated lockdown like Benia Yaman suggested from the very outset, the man who was responsible for blocking the Ebola outbreak in 2014, this would have been over in ideally 12 weeks. Uh, certainly seriously half a year. Instead, we're going to live it for, de for, for years, if not decades. Kate, do you agree with that? Is that a f would that have been a feasible option? Uh, I'm not sure I do. I mean, the broad consensus is that um, whether you had locked down harder or faster or not, COVID is now going to be uh, one of the viruses that we have to live with um, indefinitely. Um, and thanks to the miraculous vaccines, which have been provided through a lot of market forces, uh, no doubt there has been um, state and, and, and private uh, the private sector working together on this. But with the incredible development that we've seen in the private sector, it is something we can now realistically live with. Um, but look, I, I think there's, there's no doubt that the government is there for these emergency times, right? When it is the case that we have to do something that is so unhuman, so foreign to us, to lock ourselves away, to not interact with others, to not engage in commerce, then you obviously, if you're going to force people to do that, have to bring in the support behind it. Countries like the UK, I think, were very generous with the furlough scheme, quite literally the government paying private sector wages so people didn't have to go to work. But the difficult reality um, is that whether it was you mentioned the gig economy, but whether it's people who are doing deliveries through Amazon, whether it's people who are stacking shelves in supermarkets, whether it's in doctors and nurses still going to work, there was never going to be any scenario where everyone could truly have gone home for 12 weeks, every single person, without, I mean, causing probably far more pain, frankly, than the virus would have caused. The amount of deaths that could have been caused by the shortages, by the lack of health care, uh, would have far outpaced what we actually witnessed from the I virus. Think we, I think we have a counter to that, and that's New Zealand, uh, which before Delta was brought in uh, just recently, uh, successfully did that. Uh, so with, with, a, with a successful you know, social compact, which New Zealand has far better than uh, Europe, uh, America, the UK, Australia, uh, they managed to suppress the virus completely on three New separate Zealand occasions. New Zealand still had doctors and nurses in their hospitals, though. They still had people stacking the shelves in supermarkets. Not everybody was home, as you suggested. No, 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 no. I'm not saying everybody should be home. I'm saying there should be essential workers who are allowed to travel and deliver goods to the rest of us, uh, and they should be vaccinated as soon as possible. Uh, on this front, for example, I was vaccinated first in March of 2020. Okay? 2020. The reason being I know vaccine researchers who gave me a vaccine shot 
uh, in advance. It's, you can develop the vaccines this rapidly. Now, one case I'll certainly agree with you that the regulation got in the way is the regulations we have for vaccines are designed for the mass distribution vaccines that have to be tested because they have so many potentially bad side effects. Vaccines can now be developed in a matter of days after we first decode a genome. And if we'd done that for essential workers right from the very outset, uh, knowing this is a pandemic, not something which is you know, a, slow, a disease which is already there, it's a new, it's a new one, we could have uh, isolated the, the frontline workers right in the very outset, allowed them to travel because they were now safe and kept the others indoors until this thing was defeated. Uh, so it's potentially, it's possible to do a combination of both lockdowns and, and ring fencing with vaccines at three levels that could have controlled this. And the fact that we haven't done it is a sign of how unprepared we've been by the focus upon efficiency for the last 25 years, because the first warning we got about this being a likelihood is back in 1995 uh, with Garrett's uh, The Coming Plague. Now, just looking back to, I suppose, the focus on the economy, um, I just wanted, Kate, do you think that if we're looking at the response to COVID, do you think it's changed the way that people look at the economy and the role of the government in this? As you say, you know, mass bailout and the fact that, uh, in a way, uh, magic monetary arguments are harder to make after you go through something like this. Well, certainly. Uh, I think we're moving into an era of a bigger state, especially in the West. You can see that countries run by parties that traditionally are on the right that might support more market mechanisms. They've even changed their narrative and they seem to think that more state intervention is necessary. This is going to catch up with us very quickly, though, if we continue to operate as if it's emergency times, if we continue to spend like it's emergency times. You do have a few uh, politicians here in the UK, the Chancellor included, who are very worried about the inflationary risk, who really that it's going to become more and more difficult to service our debt, even if inflation and interest rates go up by, say, 1%, and they're preparing for that. Um, you only have to look this week in the UK at the energy crisis that we're witnessing to see how quickly situations can change and how costs can um, skyrocket and how we can be ill-prepared. So I think it's going to be a painful process of weaning people off those emergency measures, an important one, although I don't think we'll go the full way. I, I do think we're probably uh, in for uh, a, a decade's worth of, of larger states, at least, until those arguments for market mechanisms are are made again. Um, I think you can point to every country in this crisis and point out good times and bad times for most of them. And that's the crazy thing about this virus is that at some point countries are up, at other points they're down. Mistakes have been made everywhere along the way. Um, and I, the UK, you know, they did at the height of the first crisis make it clear that only essential workers could go out. Um, to Steve's point, you know, those vaccines were not available and we can talk about the regulations around vaccines some other time. Um, but now we've got countries like New Zealand who are really behind on their vaccine rollout and who are finding it much harder to open up when here in the UK, many, m most of the restrictions are now lifted. And this is going to have real economic impact in the years to come. The OECD has recently released their new set of forecasts. And the UK does look like its economic bounce back amongst developed countries is going to be one of the best. Still, so many things could change this. We're going into a tough winter. There's already talk of restrictions coming back. It's really, again, back to Adam Tuse's book, it's really hard to write the history of this uh, before the story is actually over. But there's no doubt that there are going to be major consequences to what we did, shutting down the world's economy and having it spring back like this. Um, a lot of people, because of that emergency support, might think that we've got out of this consequence free. It's just not going to be the case. For years now, we're going to learn of all that happened when these economies were shut down, all the pain, psychological, physical, um, all of it that it caused. Um, and we're going to have to try to uh, remedy that through a lot of public policy that we're going to have to craft quite quickly. I mean, on, on that public policy, uh, one example of how we weren't thinking properly about pandemics before this struck uh, was that I've forgotten the actual minister responsible for this, but there was a task force in the UK directed to find out how many masks should be in the National Reserve. And the uh, advice coming back from the expert committee was about a billion. Now, the reaction of the minister, well, that's too many, let's have 50 million. What that meant was in one day, you've exhausted your 
your ration of masks. Uh, so the obsession with efficiency and cutting costs, uh, you know, the economising of, of government spending, literally made this substantially worse than it could have been. And the obsession with running a balanced budget, uh, the belief that government should run surpluses, that is actually, rather than preparing us for a rainy day, that took the roof off the house before a rainy day. So I think a, a huge change, we should learn the lesson we've learned here. Governments can spend whatever they wish when there's an emergency. And when they fund it, the funding is actually not uh, borrowing from the public. The deficit creates money for the public. It creates money the banks use to buy the bonds that is then financed. So there's no failure about the government doing it. The problems are the inflationary ones Kate mentioned. Also, of course, what we're striking now, the supply chain disruptions, which are causing, causing supply uh, cost pressure that we've never had before. And to that, that extent, we have to say, well, globalisation may have made us more fragile. So we have to look at building a more robust economic structure, not one obsessed with efficiency, but looking at robustness as well. And that means having slack, which has to be paid for, not by the private sector, but by the public. And Steve, just finally, I want to end this by talking about the economic recovery. Now, do you think that it's, uh, it's actually going to be faster than many uh, anticipated? Obviously, you heard a lot about the V. I think the uh, success of lockdowns meant that, uh, that that failed to come to pass. But with vaccines, do you think actually we will move past, um, I suppose, the, the damage done by COVID to the economy quickly because people can rebound, particularly in countries with fast vaccine rollouts? Compared to a normal dra uh, drop breakdown, which is caused by a credit crunch, which is what happened back in 2008, yes, it will be faster. Uh, uh, and you haven't got a, a collapsing credit-based demand driving this, uh, which was the failure to recognise that and then running austerity after, particularly in the case of the UK, is why the recovery took so long from 2008. This time we do have you know, pent-up spending power uh, uh, pressures. We have the public with a large surplus in their accounts, courtesy of the large deficit the government has run. So there is more cash for the private sector to spend. And I think to some extent, uh, what happened back after the Spanish flu may well happen again as long as it can. And that is a lot of people say the roaring 20s was a response to being the, stuck in the lockdowns of the, uh, the Spanish flu. So yes, there will be more potential for that. But I, don't, I think this is just a prelude to what climate change is going to do us. I wouldn't be uh, putting on my dancing shoes just yet. Kate, Steve, thanks for coming on. Now, finally, Cambridge University's Vice-Chancellor Stephen Toop has announced that he'll be standing down for his position in September 2022. In this announcement, he said, I take a great deal of pride in our accomplishments, which were built together as a collegiate Cambridge community. But at the same time, the upheaval of COVID has led me to reassess my own years ahead from a personal perspective. Being near my own family and friends is more important than ever. So what will his legacy be? Douglas Murray writes for The Spectator's website this week that his time in the post had been an unmitigated disaster. To explain, Douglas joins me now. Um, Douglas, thank you for coming on today. Stephen Toop has resigned, so what do you think is really behind it? Um, well, um, the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge has said that he is going to step down early from his tenure because he wants to spend more time with his family, uh, which may be the case. Uh, it's a rather famous, infamous cop-out phrase normally, certainly in, in British politics. People say they want to spend more time with their families when uh, they know no one else wants to spend time with them generally. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's his claim. Uh, it's um, very unlikely to be true. Uh, Stephen Toop's tenure at Cambridge has been marred by a whole set of controversies, uh, uh, battles within the university and indeed with the wider culture uh, that have mattered very much. And Stephen Toop has been losing these battles one by one. Uh, he's brought an enormous amount of negative attention to Cambridge University. Uh, um, most uh, observers have recognised that his tenure in position has been absolutely lamentable. And uh, so I think it's rather obvious, you don't really need to read between the lines to come to this conclusion, that he's leaving because he's no good at the job and everyone knows it. And what about China? Do you think that uh, that has played a role in his demise? Uh, th this is very interesting. Uh, uh, the Spectator, of course, we ran a cover piece about this uh, just a couple of months ago um, about the extraordinary way in which Stephen Toop's uh, uh, period in Cambridge has coincided with an amazing amount of sucking up to the authorities in China for funding 
and uh, more. And uh, our cover piece, which exposed that, uh, uh, was um, was not able to be refuted by Cambridge University. Uh, a few lackluster attempts to try it, uh, but nobody could deny the facts. Uh, I mean, they start from the fact that very shortly after his tenure uh, began at Cambridge University, Stephen Toot went straight to the Chinese embassy and had his photographs taken and talked about the importance of greater cooperation between the authorities in China and uh, educational institutions in the UK, such as his own. Um, Cambridge, during his tenure, uh, uh, took significant amounts of funding from Chinese uh, government-linked organizations and backers. And uh, there were many, many reports, as we laid out in our cover piece, of academics and others who saw that this was a complete uh, um, completely contrary to a university's interests, and that the involvement of the Chinese authorities in Cambridge uh, clearly compromised free academic inquiry. Uh, it was an extraordinary misjudgment. Stephen Toop couldn't defend it, and I think it's certainly one of the reasons why he's going. Are you hopeful then that, although the successor has not yet been appointed, we could start to see actually a reversal when it comes to the university's approach to dealing with China? Uh, I would certainly hope so. Uh, what Stephen Toop's tenure at Cambridge uh, um, uh, shows is something wider just than the China question, though. See, what's so striking about it is that a vice-chancellor of a British university should be sucking up to the Communist Party of China uh, at the same time as instituting a whole set of new speech codes himself, or trying to, uh, within Cambridge University. Uh, uh, Stephen Toop forever talked uh, during his tenure about uh, academic freedom whilst overseeing the trashing of it. As I said on The Spectator Online this week, uh, his tenure, for instance, coincided with the sacking of a young academic called Noah Carl from one of Cambridge's colleges, um, purely because a mob of completely uninformed students claimed that Carl's research was in some way racist and he was fired and uh, that was overseen by two that was a complete uh, um demolition of the principle of academic freedom uh, whereby mobs cannot simply turn up outside colleges and demand the firing of people whose research they don't understand uh, more infamously perhaps stephen Toop oversaw and defended the very ignominious firing of a better canadian than himself uh, Professor Jordan Peterson, uh, who uh, a few years ago was meant to have taken up a visiting professorship, uh, uh, that is a, a non-paying uh, fellowship at Cambridge for a term in the theology faculty. And that invitation was rescinded by the authorities at Cambridge when it was discovered that at a meet and greet after an event, one of the thousands of people who Jordan Peterson had been photographed uh, standing beside was somebody wearing a t-shirt that said, I'm a proud Islamophobe. And for standing beside somebody with a t-shirt that's controversial, uh, Stephen Toop uh, said, yes, it's correct that this man should, Jordan Peterson, uh, should have his offer of a visiting fellowship removed. So uh, there were very strange rules that were going on in his time. Uh, perhaps it might also be said uh, that he oversaw uh, other types of controversy in Cambridge um, without being able to manage them either. Uh, um, there are quite a lot that I list in The Spectator online um, that show that actually Stephen Toop and his tenure at Cambridge had very little understanding of academic freedom, which is perhaps why he found the Chinese authorities so um, um, amenable. And just finally, Douglas, the government has been looking at things like a freedom of speech bill, uh, which could see uh, when it comes to campuses, fines or sanctions for those who are in breach of it. Do you think that could be a useful tool or is that the wrong approach? It, it could be. I'm slightly sceptical about it. I, I'm rather sceptical of the concept of the free speech czar and other such things. I mean, whoever it is would have to be um, purer than Mother Teresa or Gandhi or, or anyone else. Uh, I don't think such a person will be able to be found or agreed upon. Um, so I am slightly skeptical of the government's actual proposals whilst um, lauding the, the, the principles behind them. Um, it just it just has to be stressed that that, that that universities must be places for free inquiry at the very highest level. 
uh, they must be places of robust debate and discussion and discovery uh, and they should not be uh, able to be treated like the sort of nursery gardens that they have been uh, in recent uh, uh, years so i very much hope that the situation does change at Cambridge. But there's one final point I might make on this, which is that it's very important, I think, for people to realize one lesson that should be taken from all of this. Uh, occasionally, people have said, why are you so invested in, in this issue uh, of Cambridge University's vice chancellor? And it isn't just, as I say, because it seems to me to matter very much that our institutions aren't taken over by people who are unworthy and unfit for them. But also because it's very important that people realize that when you get sort of Whitmerpool like bureaucrats like uh, two, it, it's very important that people realize that they largely succeed because they parrot and then get ahead of the particular dogmas of the era and then punish people who aren't parroting exactly the dogmas. And people like two, uh, um, rise up in public life and take over institution after institution because they keep ahead of that lamentable curve and they think that there's only something to gain uh, from doing so and for them in the short term that might be correct they collect salaries of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds a year they benefit very nicely from it but what i suggest is that people see that as well as people being able to benefit from getting ahead of this i think lamentable curve there are also dangers from doing so, and there are um, punishments indeed for doing so. I think that, that Toop should be seen to be a moral, a, a moral story there. It's one of the things that happens when you try to make people who are smarter than you uh, follow through on dumb ideas and dumb dogmas. Uh, one of the things that can happen from that is that people will rebel, you will actually be chucked out or effectively be forced to leave your job, there is a downside to being too woke as well as an upside. Douglas, thanks for coming on. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel so you never miss an episode again. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and then the bell icon. Thanks for watching and do join us again next week.